0: So what's up, everybody? My name is Jordan, as my wife Jessica just said. Um, uh, My family and I are just getting back last week from uh, our annual trip to the big city of Buffalo Junction, Virginia. Uh, In Buffalo Junction, Virginia, it's the house that my grandmother grew up in, the house that my grandmother was born in in 1927. And every single year, about 15 or 20 New Yorkers descend on Buffalo Junction. Uh, The house has well water, and growing up, um, there was like one small well for about 15 or 20 of us, so we mastered the art of taking 60-second showers because once the water ran out, it was out. But the highlight of our trip down to uh, Buffalo Junction, Virginia, every year is the family reunion. The family reunion for us is something that I've taken for granted over the years because I just kind of took for granted that everybody's family comes together every single year and not around funerals or anything like that, but just to come together to celebrate family. But there was one part about the family reunion that I absolutely hated as a kid. Um, We would go through the family history. And I'm like 10 years old. My cousin Ryland is reading through the family history. I can smell the fried fish like right over here. And I'm like, bro, hurry up. Don't nobody care about nobody that you're talking about. I just wanted to eat and get to the games. But over the years, Uh, as we've gone through the family history, man, it's just been something that is so captivating and so fascinating. My family has worked hard to really piece together our family history, going all the way back uh, to Oliver Jameson. He was born enslaved in 1853. And we go from him all the way through the present. Now, one of the things that struck me this year as we told the story of our family was that If you were just to look at the family, the the Jameson family, and this is how we named my oldest son Jameson after my family. If you were just to look objectively at the history of my family, like it's impossible to tell the story of the Jamesons without Christianity being at the center. Like just as a historian, if you were looking at the history of it, um, faith and faith in Christ has been something that has shaped and molded and propelled my family all through the years. Now, not a lot of things get under my skin. I'm a very cool, calm, and collected person. But something that probably makes me extremely angry, two things that make me angry. Number one, Nets fans. Number two, (laughs) when people call Christianity the white man's religion. Like, I absolutely hate that. Like, it doesn't matter where I am, if if I hear someone arguing about that, I'm going to hop into that conversation. Because nothing could be further from the truth. First and foremost, Uh, they're negating the fact that Christianity is a Middle Eastern religion that Jesus the Christ hid in Egypt when he was first born in Africa. But even more important than that, if you look back at the history of America, uh, it was Christianity and the Bible that fueled resistance of my ancestors. It was the black church that is by far the single most important institution in American history to overturn slavery and Jim Crow. It was that single institution. And biblical Christianity, if you understand it correctly, it is not just about eternity, about where you're going to go one day in the here and after. Now, make no mistake about it, the Bible absolutely talks about our souls, the permanence of our souls, and what it means to have a right relationship with God. At the same time, the Bible doesn't just talk about the here and after. It talks about the right now, and it addresses the wrongs of our society. And one of the reasons that Christianity has found its home in every single culture all over the world is because of the way that it relates to those who are being oppressed. If you think about it, there's an African theologian by the name of Laman Sane. And Laman Sane, it was a professor at Yale, and he said, Christianity is the only religion that has no center. Islam started in Mecca, and Mecca is the center of Islam today. Hinduism started in India, and India is the center of Hinduism today. Buddhism started in the Far East, and the Far East is still the center of Buddhism today. But with Christianity, it has no center. It thrives in every single context, no matter where you put it. Back in the day, it was thriving in Jerusalem, and then moved to Greece and northern Africa, and now it's uh, the center being uh, South America and the Americas and Asia and Africa. Why is that? Because Christianity, properly understood, doesn't just talk about a future spiritual state, but it meets people exactly where they are, with the real issues of their day. Now, the book of James that we've been going through presents to us a number of texts. Um, and one of these texts that we're about to get to in James 5 shows us this revolutionary text and shows a, a light of what the gospel is supposed to mean. Here's how one author puts it He says, The scandal of, is that the gospel means liberation, that this liberation comes to the poor, and that it gives them strength and the courage to break the conditions of servitude. Christianity is not the white man's religion. So today we're looking at this revolutionary text, one that makes me very proud to be a Christian. And James is confronting evil and oppression in his day. Here's how he puts it. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Here's why James says: Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the armies of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth, and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Now James does two things in this text. The first one that impacts us all socially, how we relate to society, and another one that relates to us personally. First, we'll tackle the social aspect of what James is saying. So the first thing that James is doing very explicitly is James is condemning predatory practices by those in power to perpetuate systems that widen the wealth gaps between the haves and the have-nots. Now, one of the reasons I think my ancestors, like Oliver Jameson and others, grafted Christianity into their lives is because the Bible is concerned with present-day problems and oppression. It is not the opiate of the masses. It is revolutionary. It dignifies the oppressed. Now, when I read this text in James... Uh, particularly after the week I've just had of going through my history, I I can't help but think how my great-great-great-grandparents and my great-grandparents would have heard this text as they lived through the South in Jim Crow time. A time where everybody was going to church, a time where the Klansmen were deacons, and everybody was engaged in predatory systems of sharecropping and Jim Crow, and yet they called themselves Christians. James would have something to say to them. So James is not playing around Um, in the text. He addresses them as, you rich ones, oh, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you, in verse 1. Now, all throughout the Bible, in the book of James, James usually refers to the people as brothers and sisters. Over and over again, when when he's addressing them, he's referring to them as brothers and sisters. In this text, he just calls them, you rich ones, and doesn't even call them brothers or sisters. And, And I think it's because their actions the people that he's confronting, they were so destructive that the truth about them in James could only produce a righteous indignation. Now, there's two sides of my family. Um, On my my mother's side of the family, um, they were able to escape the horror of sharecropping in the South. Uh, There was a man named George Wharton, and George Wharton was a very light-skinned man who was black, but he was able to pass for white. And as a result, George Wharton was able to to own land. And George Wharton owned a lot of land, and actually the church that my family helped to start back in the day is named after him, Wharton Memorial Baptist Church. He gave away about 1,000 acres of land, and my family were some of the recipients of it. My great-grandfather, James Spencer Jameson, was one of the recipients, and as a result, they were not forced to be sharecroppers. They were able to build a church and a school, and to live dignified, to not have to live under the predatory systems of sharecropping and Jim Crow. But that's only one side of my family. My father's mother was born in Ripley, Tennessee, told the story before, um, and over the years, as a, as a kid, I never fully understood how her life came to be what it was. When she would come over when we were kids, um, she would you know, be sewing shirts for us, and she would never need a thimble because her fingers were so calloused from the years, the decades of picking cotton. She had the handwriting of a six- or a seven-year-old in first or second grade, because she had to leave school to work in the fields. And at the end of a year's work in the field, she would get zero dollars, my family would get nothing, and sometimes they would even, even owe money. James 5 is condemning. It says, look... The pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your field cries out, and it dignifies those who were oppressed. And it says, the outcry of the harvester has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Now, we don't have to look back 2,000 years to see applications for these verses. We can look only back to my grandmother. In scriptures like James 5, quite honestly, as we are in national conversations, here's one of my hopes. Honestly, y'all, I want your faith to be something that is comprehensively shaping your life. Not just in one area, not just Sunday morning, you come, you listen to a sermon, you go out, but comprehensively, socially, politically, spiritually, emotionally, in your family, in your relations. I want our faith to impact every single aspect of our life in the way that we view different things. The reason that I have come to certain stances, particularly on concepts like reparations, are because of scriptures like James 5, that there have been people who have benefited. Generational wealth has been built on my grandmother's back, and I am not an economist. We have some here today who are much smarter than I am. But I do know that saying my bad is not enough. So James is condemning these uh, predatory practices to those in power who perpetuate systems that widen the wealth gaps of the haves and the have-nots. And check it, y'all. But if we really put this principle into practice, it's like that much more sobering. Because we don't even have to go back to my grandmother. We don't even have to externalize it and think about Jim Crow. We can simply look at the ways that we fatten ourselves at the expense of other people. We can look at this school... PS 76 and District 3, how there is an imbalance in the way that schools are funded, how certain schools have uh, budgets and, and all of these resources, and the gaps, particularly between black and brown kids, continue to widen and widen. But yet, our faith should have something to say about that. We should never want to idly participate in anything that allows for people to be harmed. And here's the main reason, because people are made in God's image. Every single person is made in God's image. And it is a frightful thing to mishandle someone made in God's image. And James here is using some really, really strong language to say that you have fattened yourselves at the expense of other people. I think we would all do very well, even if um, it doesn't necessarily, if you don't think you have that much, um, to really make sure that we are not ourselves. In everything we do, in our relationships, in our jobs, that we're not fattening ourselves at the expense of other people who may need a hand up because God is concerned. God is concerned not just with the spiritual state of people but also with the social location that people are being treated fairly with equity, with dignity. So first things first, uh, James is, man, this is a a hard text to read and a, a hard text to process. But secondly, I think what James is doing here in James 5 is he is warning everybody about the power of money. Jesus talked about money as much as the American church talks about sex. Think about how much people talk about sex in the American church. We're obsessed with that. We're obsessed with sex, what you can do, who you can do it with. Jesus talked about money that much because Jesus knew that money, the love of money, has the particular ability to intoxicate you, to lure you away, to function as a false savior in your life, and I think what James five is doing, additionally on top of what uh, it does for us socially, it does something to us personally. That it's a warning. It is a warning, not just of those terrible people out there, but it is a warning of how money can intoxicate us in here, in our own hearts. Here's one way of saying it: Your devotion to God, your devotion to God, is revealed not by the passion of your worship. Your devotion to God is not revealed by how many times you come to church and you cry on a Sunday. It is revealed in many ways by the way that you handle your money. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, listen to this, what Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does Jesus want from you? He wants our hearts. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Now, here's the... The punctuation mark. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Cannot serve both God and money. Now, two points, and we're going to go outside and have a good time at church and chill. First is this the love of money is dangerous. The love of money is dangerous. Now, please make sure you're hearing me correctly. Money is just a thing. It's an inanimate object. It's nothing in and of itself. It's not inherently good or, or bad. Money is just money. The Bible doesn't say that money is, is bad. It says the love of money is bad. If you were to read through any of the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus himself had a treasurer, which means Jesus had the bag with him. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so money in and of itself is, is not a bad thing. But to love money to let money direct your life, to let money function as your security blanket, to let money have your affection, man, that is a dangerous thing. Think about the things that you are seeing and witnessing today, the issues in our society, it all goes back to the love of money. Money in itself is not the problem. A preacher once used an illustration that money is like water to a boat. Water is useful to a boat and it helps it sail better to its destination. But let water get into the boat. If it is not pumped out, it will drown it. So riches are useful and convenient for our passage. We sail more comfortably with them through the troubles of this world. But if water gets into the ship, if love of riches get into the heart, then we are drowned by them. So water, um, money is, is like water to a boat. It's helpful. It helps us get from A to B. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. But if money gets inside the boat, it's a dangerous thing. Quick caveat on the side. I realize that at Renaissance, we have people from every social location. We have people who have just gotten their dream job. And you are here living the life. And we also realize that we have people who are really struggling financially. And when you hear a sermon about money, you're like, that ain't my problem, brother. because I, I ain't got none to mishandle. For you, I want you to think about how the church or the purpose of the church, the purpose of the church is to be a family, to be together, not just in words, but actually, indeed, that we would actually be able to help you. One of the things that somebody told me, it, it hurt me, uh, it hurt me so bad, they were, they've been a member of Renaissance for years. They've been around pre-pandemic days, they serve, they've given and they were down on life. They lost their job, and they were really struggling financially. And I said, well, why didn't you reach out? And they said, I was, I was embarrassed. If you are struggling financially, hear this. We have a fund that has already been funded by the generosity of everybody at Renaissance. Your gifts go to help us do this thing. We have deacons that would love to bless you financially. If you are struggling, you don't have to be struggling. Allow us to love you. Allow God to bless you through us. It is a 100% confidential arrangement. Nobody will know. All you need to do is email grace at renaissancenyc.com. Email grace, the theological concept, not a person. Grace at renaissancenyc.com, and someone will contact you back in two or three days. We would love to serve you. Don't rob us the opportunity of loving you. Don't rob God the opportunity of blessing you through other people. If it's pride standing in the way... Ask God to give you the strength and the courage to reach out to overcome that because we want to bless you. We want to love you. So the love of money is dangerous. Uh, but here, here's another really big warning for us. Money is like really deceptive. And I, every single time we, tell a, we start a sermon, one of the biggest dangers we have is that people always think, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. Like, I, yo, I wish Tisha was here. If Tisha need to hear this. Money, more than almost any other subject, has the ability to blind us to make it about everybody else. I wish Jeff Bezos... I'm going to send Bezos this sermon. (laughs) I'm going to send him the link. We love spending somebody else's money telling them what to do. I want you to listen to two ridiculous statistics. If you make more than $30,000 a year, you are in the top 4% on the planet of earnings. That means you make more money than 684 billion people. If you make $55,000 a year, you are in the 1% globally on the planet. Now, nobody in it, or oh, maybe some of y'all got, really got money, you think you, that you know that you're in the 1%, but for normal people like me, I don't normally think that I belong to the 1% of wealth. But statistically, objectively, factually, if you make $55,000 a year, you belong to the 1%, you are rich. You make more than 99% of people in the world. But yet, when it comes to concepts like how we handle our money, generosity, we don't think that we really have it. They did a study years ago, and they found that across the board, they interviewed people, and they said, well, what is enough money? And basically, across the board, everybody basically doubled their income and said, that will be enough. People making 50, they said, man, 100 will be, that'll be great. People making 100, they said, oh, 200 will be great, and so on and, and so forth. Money is deceptive because it makes us feel like we barely have anything when you are the 1%. Money has a specific power to deceive us, mainly because of our appetites. Now, one of these days, we're going to teach a sermon on appetites, and appetites are not a bad thing necessarily, but your appetites only really know one, more, one word more. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to submit, to learn to submit not just your Sunday morning routine, not just a Monday morning devotional time, but learning to submit all of your life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That includes how you spend and how you use your money. That includes putting desires inside of you to death so that you can live faithfully and generously to, to God. Now, Jesus, in one of his famous scriptures in verse 24, we say, he says, for where your treasure is, your heart will be there also Another translation of that basically says, where your heart really rests is revealed by money. And that's mainly because we believe two lies about money. Uh, Money deceives us in two ways. The first lie that money deceives us in it, it makes us feel like we have security. Now, again, make no mistake about it, having money makes life easier. Money in and of itself is not a bad thing, but money could never be your security. It can make you secure in some ways, but you'll be secure until you're not. Years ago, when Steve Jobs died of cancer, this man had many billions of dollars over and over and over again, but when he got pancreatic cancer, there was nothing he could do. He was secure until he wasn't. Years ago, my wife and I went on a baby moon to Mexico City before our first child was born, and uh, we got in one of these nice boutique hotels, and uh, it was one of those... Hotels, that like, they were very concerned about the aesthetics of everything. And for whatever reason, we didn't have a deadbolt on our door. I didn't think anything of it. We were in a nice neighborhood, doorman and all that good stuff. And the night before we were about to go back to New York, um, it was like one o'clock in the morning and I just heard the door open. So I jumped up, my wife was pregnant. I threw her in front of me to get more, <laughs> more protection. And the man, I felt bad for him, too, because he was terrified. He, like, he was horrified. He closed the door so fast, and he, uh, the hotel gave him our room key by accident, and they had a clerical error, and um, he was uh, pretty miserable about that. And um, up until that point, we were secure. I was sleeping. I was, we were having a great time. We were secure until we weren't. And then we realized we were never really secure, because anybody could just, wave a little plastic card in front of the door and walk into our room. Money lies to us and tells us that we're secure, and you'll be secure until you're not. This is what idols do. Idol in every single way, whether it's a relational idol, whether it's a financial idol, whether it's a performance idol, it will always overpromise you, and it will always underdeliver. And the reason I think Jesus goes so hard at the concept of money is because Jesus wants to be your real security. He wants you to wake up, with a real boldness and confidence in your life. Therefore, entering, um, a, a, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. Jesus wants us to have a boldness and a confidence that he is our security. Money is useful for sure, but he wants to be our security. Another lie that money tells us is that um, money is our significance. Now, this is specifically, this is really true for people who either don't have as much as they want or people who have a lot. And we think that we're more significant because we have money, or we're embarrassed that we don't have a lot of money so we feel less significant or less valuable. One day when we meet God face-to-face, He will not ask you how much money was in your bank account. The nature of a relationship with God, the nature of a relationship with anybody, any real love relationship, is never based on what you have or what you can do for the other person. It's never based on all of your performance and your accolades or your money the bank account, money in the bank account. None of those things matter when it comes to the concept of love. We want to be loved for us and not for what we can do for other people. And the strange paradox is we want more money to feel more significant, but yet we want people to love us regardless. Every single person right now who's considering getting married or in a relationship, we want to know that if the chips were down for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, they would be there but yet we are lied to by by money, and we we think that we're more significant if, if we have it. So money is terrible security. It's a terrible security blanket because you'll have it, and then it could be gone in an instant, or the problem that you have in your life, money can't solve it. Money simultaneously can't be your significance. You need something much bigger and better than some money to be your significance. The most uninteresting, boring Terrible person to be around is a person whose money is their significance. So I think the antidote to that is what you've seen throughout the church history is that people who have claimed faith in Jesus use their money wisely. They're generous with their money. Money doesn't have a hold of them, although they may have a lot of money. Money. Now, generosity throughout the Bible. um, I often get emails, and I'll I'll save some of you uh, an email about this. People get mad because they say, well, should I tithe or not? Should I give 10%? Should I give uh, a dollar amount? Should I give to gross or should I give to net? The answer is God loves a cheerful giver. You should be generous. What is generosity to you? Here's a really funny thing. People pray all the time and say, oh, man, I haven't gotten an answer to my prayer. Ask God how much money he wants you to give. You'll get an answer to that in 13 minutes. <laughs> if you go home today, you say, God, should I give this amount? God will give you an answer to that. In my family, my wife and I, we give 10% of our income, and we try to be more generous than that, uh, not just the Renaissance, but with people and with other organizations, because I want my life to be marked by generosity, by trusting in God, not in trusting in, in money. And for you, maybe generosity looks like 1% of your income. Here's what Arthur Ashe says. Start where you are. Don't look at where anybody else is at. Use what you have. Do what you can. Start where you are. Don't compare yourself to someone else. Use what you have. Do what you can. A really practical thing to do this week, I want you to do three things. Number one, I want you to evaluate what you're actually spending money on. A lot of times we think we're broke or we think we don't have enough, and if you were to look through your credit card statement, you would see you have more than enough. You're actually just spending money on a lot of extra things that you may or may not need. So the first thing is we need to take a hard look in the mirror. If we're going to be people who use our money wisely, if we are going to be people who submit our lives, all of it, to the Lordship of Jesus, we need to evaluate and see what we're spending money on. Two, we need to simplify our life. We need to simplify our lives. Again, I like nice things. There's nothing wrong with liking nice things. There's nothing wrong with having a good meal. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. Please don't hear any shame in enjoying life. God wants us to enjoy the things that he gives us, so long as it's submitted to him. And the third thing that you need to do is to give something. One of the things that's paradoxical is the only way to become generous is by starting to give. If you are waiting for a burning bush moment where God speaks to you in front of Popeyes and says, you need to go and give some money to something, it's not going to happen People get real theological with stuff that they don't want to do. They're like, man, I'm just seeking the Lord, man, just uh, asking for clarity for the Lord to show me. Start giving today. I'm a pastor. I was born at night, not last night. And I know a lot of people have trust issues when it comes to church. So maybe you're not ready to give to the church. And one day I hope that you get there. I hope that you come to love Renaissance as your family, that you trust us with the way that we shepherd and steward the money that is given to us. But until you do, there's other opportunities for you to give today. This PS76 wish list, I want you to go outside as soon as the benediction is done, and I want you to run it up. Run it up. That money goes directly to the school, it's not coming to us, we're not benefiting in any way, we're just trying to bless the school. Or whatever organization, just start being generous because money will never lose its grip on you you until you lose your grip on money. So start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. Um, No matter how rich or poor you might feel, right now is the best time to be generous. As counterintuitive as it is, generosity begins wherever you are. So I'm going to leave you with this scripture from 1 Timothy 6 and 17. Paul says these words to his protege in the ministry, a young man named Timothy. He says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant Or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. See, I love Paul's balance here. He's not saying that generosity is a life to be miserable. He's saying that we need to set our hope not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who gives us everything we need, because God wants us to delight, God wants us to enjoy. But one of the things that you'll delight in is by being generous. The people who I know who are the most generous are the the happiest people by far. They're free. They're able to love people. They're able to love God. And here's Paul's rationale for why um, Timothy, and and by extension, we can do this, is because God is our security. A scripture we've quoted over and over and over again in Romans 8, where Paul says, if God did not withhold Jesus from us, think about this, if God did not withhold his only son from us, will he not, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Like if God didn't stop at the cross, if God didn't, if Jesus, when he had every opportunity to turn around on the cross, if he didn't stop there, won't he graciously give us, along with him, everything we need? In the moments where you're struggling to be generous, where you feel your, your fists are clenched, I want you to take a look at the cross and say, God, help me to trust that the same God who went to the cross on my behalf will give me everything I need to survive. And I want you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to soften your heart, to free you from whatever power money might have over you. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, I'm just grateful for my brothers and my sisters here, for the warnings we see in Scripture, Lord. I pray that we would take heed. I pray that we would not think about other people. I pray that we would not go home and waste another week thinking about how this might apply to our lives. Lord, I pray for urgency in the way that we live our lives committed to you. Lord, I pray that, we would, that I would be a person marked by generosity, by having a trust in you and setting my hope on you. God, you are good. You're better than money could ever be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.